The pararescuement mission to rescue, recover, and return American or allied forces in times of danger or extreme duress, whether shot down or isolated behind enemy lines, surrounded, engaged, wounded, or captured by the enemy. PJs will do whatever required to deny the enemy a victory and bring our warriors home to fight another day. Leave no airman, marine, soldier, or sailor behind is our nation's supreme promise and responsibility to our brave warfighters. The United States Air Force PJs are the elite ground forces that provide our nation with the capability to execute this noble responsibility. The PJ motto is, these things we do that others may live. Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason here with Rich. Our guest today from New York City is Dr. Doug Kachijan. Doug is a former pararescuman or PJ in the U.S. Air Force and now a doctor of physical therapy and CEO co-founder of Resilient Systems, where he works with athletes and operators at every level from Major League Baseball to the NCAA to Special Operations Forces, probably some other folks thrown in for good measure as well. Our past crossed a few years ago when Michael Easter of Men's Health wrote an article about the virtues of rucking that cited both of us. So he cited Doug and, and we both had this service background. Doug was cited as a, a PJ and I got in touch with him through Michael and then we've kind of continued the conversation. So especially with his service background and continued service through medicine, Doug is exactly the kind of guest or glorious professional that we love having on. Doug, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us from, from New York City. Now, before we get into your, your time as a PJ and kind of how that helped the glide path to your, your current role, wanted to start with how you grew up, what your sort of influence to, to join the, the Air Force in a time of war was, and just, you know, any early influences or, or mentors on your life. Yeah, thank you. Um, everyone's got a story, right? I mean, I would say mine is relatively un- uninteresting from the standpoint that I grew up, you know, at a pretty easy life. Everything I could have wanted was provided for, but like a lot of young men, I felt like I was never really that challenged. I mean, you know, like having the perspective that I have now, when I look back at my childhood and my youth, like all I really had to do was show up to school, study, get decent grades, you know, play sports, go to practice. <laughs> Knowing what I know now, like that's really not that difficult. I mean, yes, like you have to do certain things. You have to be diligent and disciplined to do your homework and all that. But it's like everything I could have wanted was provided for. And all I had to do was not screw it up. I didn't really have to like create any opportunity for myself. I just had to not Grew up the opportunities that I had, but I'd always been intrigued by, you know, personal challenges and growing up just kind of watched all those Discovery Channel specials about the various special operations units. But, you know, at, at that point when I was really young, it was more of an abstraction. Like, I didn't really imagine myself doing those things because where, where I came from, like everybody had a pretty predetermined path. So what was yours? Um, I mean, like my father was a physician. And then when I was in, in college, actually, like, I thought I wanted to do that just because it was sort of what I was exposed to. It seemed like a noble profession, and, and it certainly is. You know, you, you get to help people. It's idealistic, and it's somewhat, you know, intellectually stimulating. So I just kind of figured, like, that I would do that. And so I ended up going to going to college, undergrad, thought I wanted to go to medical school, and I took it pretty far. I mean, I went as far as taking the MCAT, the entrance exam for med school, interviewed at some schools. It was pretty deep in the process, but the fall of my senior year of college, September 11th happened. So I graduated college in 2002. And so it wasn't necessarily like, you know, 9-11 happened. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the recruiters tomorrow. Kind of more indirect. It was that 
I had this medical interest or presumed medical interest. I was applying to medical school. And then once September 11th happened, you know, not that the military wasn't relevant before that, but it became a lot more relevant. So there was a lot more publicity, media exposure about various groups in the military. I just remember one time during my senior year of college, like either reading about or watching some kind of special on terror rescue. And I was intrigued by it because, you know, here I was, I was trying to, you know, enter a, a medical career. Um, but I'd always been intrigued by, again, like just wh- whether it was like the military or explorers, just, you know, people who like really, really challenged themselves, whether it was like, you know, physically or psychologically. And kind of the more I learned about rescue, just the more intrigued I was by it, and the more I was like, you know what, if I, if I don't try this, you know, at this point in my life, like my whole thing was I didn't want to be at the age that I am now. I'm like, I'm 40, you know, and I, I didn't want to be 40 years, 40 years old and regret that I didn't do something exciting and challenging and different when I was younger. And any conventional track that I would have wanted to take would have been available to me later. But you can't, you know, I, mean, I, I suppose like I could have done the reverse path, become a physician and then try to prepare rescue right now. But I don't think my body would have <laughs> handled it as well, you know. And so that was, I mean, that was kind of the path. I think the more I learned about, the more I was like, this is something that I just have to try. And the pararescue mission appealed to me mainly because of the emphasis on like, you know, medicine and technical rescue. It wasn't that like, I wouldn't have wanted to do a different type of special operations job, but you know, I'm a pretty like cynical guy more so now than ever, but I was also pretty cynical back then. I didn't like the idea of somebody telling me, you know, like what my mission was going to be per se, but with pararescue, no matter what the, the political objective is, it's like you're going to get a fellow, you know, service member out of harm's way. And no matter what the other circumstances were, like I would always feel really good about it and not so cynical. So that was kind of the, the story leading up to it. As far as like my personal influences, I mean, again, I have more perspective now than I did back then, but I would say the biggest influence was my father. Not that he was, my father actually was in the military when he was younger, kind of like around, like right after Vietnam. So he kind of missed that. And it wasn't like a huge part of his life. He did one, one enlistment and he was a physician in the military, but just kind of like the way that he, his devotion to his family, the way that he took care of himself and, and the rest of us and just like his priority is really is just, you know, work hard, provide and, and try to create opportunities for your loved ones. And now that I'm a little bit older, I've got my own family. I mean, that's really the most important thing. So, so what's like the most, what's the most salient lesson specific that, that your dad taught you when you say the way he carried himself, how did he show you what that was? I, I mean, it's, it sounds weird because we talk about this like in the military, but he conducted himself as a professional. So if he was, you know, he was wearing his medical hat, he did that with the utmost professionalism. And not that you're like a professional father, but he took that role very seriously. And he always, he had an emotional intelligence to him where he knew when to push us and when to be hard on my sister and I, and then when to be a little bit more compassionate and loving. And I, you know, I think with any kind of like personality trait, right? Like, we always say, like, for example, like, oh, it's great to be loyal to people, but you can be overly loyal to the point that other people take advantage of you. So any personality trait taken to the extreme can be really good or really bad. And I think he knew how to just navigate those different things. And he was always, I would say, the, the biggest thing is he's always very authentic. So even if he did something that, you know, if I look back on and I'm like, well, that probably wasn't the right way to do it. I think his intentions were always good. And he was always very authentic. And he just, he tried his hardest all the time. And that's really, I guess, all you can really do. All right. So you went to undergrad at, at Brown, right? Correct. Brown is not exactly known. I mean, I've, I've been to Brown. It's a, it's a nice uh, campus. I know you're going to say a big feeder is in the military. It's, it's yeah. not exactly known as a military feeder. And, and yeah. 
9-11 happens and it, it plants a seed, right? It's, it's yeah. sort of, cause it was the same. I mean, for Rich, it was Vietnam. And for me, it was the same. I'm one year, one year older than you are. Right. And so yeah. it was just all of a sudden, I mean, it's hard to describe to, to kids these days, if you will, but it's just, it was everywhere in the news all of the time. And you're seeing it, you're seeing God talk about challenging yourself. Yeah. The mountains of Afghanistan look pretty challenging, you know? Right. And so it's just, it's that inspiration, that push, that kick that you get. And so that's, that's kind of what it was for me as well. I, I ended up enlisting as you did. I'd gone to a four-year college, right? We had ROTC. So it was a little bit more of a military. It just was off the, off my radar. Yeah. Brown is not known as a military feeder school. That was absolutely the point I was making. Yeah, and, and you chose to go from that and then you enlisted. So walk us through that and, and describe the, the degree of shock and awe that that was for your parents. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because they were under the impression that I was going to be uh, applying to, well, I did apply to medical school, but I was going to be carrying through with it. So, you know, I, I remember I had mentioned going through that process and then I was like, Hey, you know, mom and dad, I'm thinking about doing this pararescue thing. And I don't think they took it really seriously until like I actually decided to do it. And then one day I'm like, you know what? Like, this is really what I want to do. And I, I would say it, it was a kind of a predictable reaction. Um, my father was kind of like, I support that. If that's what you want to do. My mother was more protective and was kind of like, almost like I wish somebody else's kid would do that, especially with 9 11, because you knew at that point. Anybody that's joined the military was going to be going to war. So you're, obviously your perspective, you're able to ask that question. You appreciate kind of the, the disparity between going to a place like Brown in the military, particularly as an enlisted member. Um, and, and at the time, like, I really had no idea, like, how profound that, that dichotomy would be. And I, I had looked into the, the officer track versus the enlisted track. And kind of the more research I did, the more I, I, I discovered that for pararescue especially, like they have officers who are called combat rescue officers. It was really hard to get an officer billet um, unless you had done ROTC or gone to the Air Force Academy or been prior service. Because you basically, I basically would have had to, based on my background, committed to a different job, done that job for, you know, an, like an enlistment as an officer and then tried to cross-train into pararescue or combat rescue officer. And I, I just wanted to join the military to do that one thing. So that was the biggest reason was that that's all I wanted to do. And basically the only way to do it was to enlist, not go the officer route. But then even the more I learned, the more I recognized there are differences, right? Like in, in pararescue, the, the officers do go on missions, but they're not as hands-on with the medical stuff. And the medical side of things is what really appealed to me about the job because it was kind of what I was, the track that I was on anyway. So, you know, on a, on a pararescue or a combat rescue mission, the officers really doing more of like the command and control, less of the like working the working the site with technical rescue, less like hands-on patients, um, and that's that's what I wanted to do. And I guess I kind of figured if I, if I wanted to be like make a career out of the military, I could always become an officer later on. But at least I would have my foot in the door as an enlisted pararescue man. So that was kind of the rationale for going the enlisted route. But I, I mean, I have zero regrets over that. I think it, it was it was fine. Like if I if I ended up, I, I get people ask me all the time, like, hey thinking about going into soft, whether it's pararescue or, you know, special forces or any kind of soft job, like, should I go enlisted or officer? These people who have the option to do both, they have the four-year degrees. I'm like, well, I mean, if, if you know for sure this is a job you want to do for 20 years, like, yes, you probably will, you know, run and gun a little bit less ultimately as an officer, but you do have to think about, like, the career aspect and providing a life for yourself and your family and, like, 
it does make more sense, like long term, probably to at least at some point become an officer if you have the option to do it. Um, but for what I did, I mean, I ended up doing basically 13 years between full time and part time service. For, for for me, it worked out, and I think it was the right decision. But you know, going back to, to Brown, like it is a pretty progressive educational institution, and so you know, Brown, like relative to other campuses, like you have to major in something, or they call it a concentration. So like I was a biology major. And I was pre-med, so I had to take a certain number of biology courses and then all of the pre-med requirements. But beyond that, like, there was no foreign language requirement. I didn't have the typical distribution requirements that other colleges have because Brown's philosophy is kind of like, we want you to kind of take academic risks and encourage you to be curious and not worry so much about the, it's very like unstructured. And I think that's like, that's not bad. That's designed to be that way. So to go from a, a relatively unstructured environment where they kind of encourage you to like, think for yourself. Everyone's an individual. There's not a lot of like, you know, they, they pride themselves in being kind of anti-conformist. And then to enlist in the military where, I mean, like, let's be honest, like when you're going to basic training, like your job isn't really to think, it's, it's to conform, to kind of subjugate your individuality to the group. And, you know, like all I knew was like, I wanted to be a PJ. I didn't know like how they, they break down your identity to kind of, you, you, you've got to be in the bigger military before you can be in the special operations community. You've got to learn how worthless you are, right? Yeah. Like, you will clean this. You will do that, you know? Right. And it serves a purpose. I mean, you have to you have to work to the lowest common denominator. You're working with big groups. You can't individualize basic training for everybody. But there were times when I was like, you know, why, like, for six weeks, like, all we're doing is marching around, cleaning things. Like, I don't <laughs> see what this has to do with being, and I'm sure, like, everyone has gone to basic training and saw this, right? The, the, the thought is not unique to me. And I guess that it teaches like attention to detail and like adhering to procedure and subjugating your individuality. Granted, we've been doing it this way for a very long time. There could be a better way, you know, but like it served its purpose. It's only, it's a very small percentage of military training. But after that, it was much more focused on like training for your job. But yeah, it was a very unique experience. And in some ways, looking back, I probably dreaded basic training even more than going to like pararescue selection where you basically just get crushed all day it's, and it's much more difficult physically and you suffer a lot more but the kind of like monotony of basic training and just like what seemed like the pointlessness but you know it definitely it was a test for sure well you've got that you know you've got that big enormous doctor brain right and it's like pain and suffering will shut your brain off like it will absolutely speak to your soul whereas you i, I suffered from the same kind of overthinking syndrome right yeah and basic training, you're like, I, I drill sergeant, I don't get it. Right. Like, why are we, and it, it's, it's running through your yeah. head the whole time, but ultimately like, look, you, there, there's benefits to submitting to, yeah. you know, the, the service of our nation, no matter how you got to get there. Right. Absolutely. And, and then it leads you to, it leads you to sort of awesome opportunities. Awesome is a loaded word. So I, I mean, you got sent around the, the globe. What, what really stands out if someone wants to say, Hey, what's, What's life as a PJ like? Or, or I mean, last week, no pressure. I mean, we, we had Roger Sparks on who was Bulldog Bite, right? Yeah. And and that's like, I mean, I read that. I just got goosebumps thinking about him mm -hmm. describing that. But, you know, I mean, that's an extreme case, right? At, at the same time, right? Like, I, I've learned so much about PJs from our conversation a couple of weeks ago to, to Roger being here for a little bit to you know, turns out one of my neighbors that comes and works out of my driveway every once in a while, once in a while was, was a PJ. He was on the officer side, you know, to oh, just, cool. you know, you're kind of a carve out. You're kind of like, 
jackals or something in the military where you just sort of, you know, appear, right? And, and, but you're there to do good. It, it's kind of like, all right, you're just sort of chasing the next, uh, the next thing. So if you're going to describe, I mean, what's, what stands out that, that exemplifies your service? Yeah. Well, as far as like the, the overall pararescue mission and experience, I'll start with that first and then I'll kind of get into like what, you know, kind of the defining experiences were for me. Pararescue is kind of like 911 for the military. So you can, I mean, I've had deployments where like I frankly did very little because this is a double-edged sword of pararescue, any kind of like rescue type job. You have all this training. You want to be there like to answer the call when something happens. But at the same time, like, I don't want to be busy just to be busy because that means that other people are having a really bad day. So depending on what you're covering down on, like I've had deployments, you know, where my my only responsibility, my team's only responsibility was to do CSAR for like a task force, right? Like kind of like you, like you guys, the people you work with. So I don't necessarily like want, I don't want to like get a call that night like, hey, you know, the assault team's bird went down or someone's pinned under a building or someone got shot. But if that does happen, like we want to be the ones to go. So in some cases, it's a reactive job, depending on how you're postured. The kind of like bread and butter PJ mission is kind of like you're in a helicopter, you're on alert, and you're just you're on the hook for certain things that can go down, depending on who you're assigned to in the theater. That's like a more traditional, you know, CSAR posture. And in those cases, to your point, like you are the jackal because nobody really wants to see you until they need you. Like, oh, you know, you're there, you're briefing this stuff. And nobody wants to think about, like, well, we, they don't want to think about what the PJs are going to have to do because that means that it's, like, it's a bad day for them. So it's almost like it's this ominous thing. Nobody wants to deal with it. We, You know, there are a lot of missions where, as a PJ, you're actually, you're embedded with, like, an assault team. So even, like, you know, special forces teams will have PJs on as, like, an extra medic and a technical rescue um, expert. You know, the, the Navy is on that. And even, like, some of the higher level, you know, units in the military do that. So you, you, you can either operate like rescue for, you know, where it's more responsive or it can be a little bit more proactive where you're actually like on the ground with the team serving as more of like a, a medic type role. So I mean, the cool thing is there's a lot of, a lot of variety in what you can do and, and different people you can work with. And, and that for me was probably the coolest part of the job is just like the other PJs I work with, the other people in the special operations community, just people who are so, I mean, and this is why it's so hard for guys to do other things, working with people who are so, devoted, so capable, so so intelligent, you know, have all these different personality traits they were selected for. And it's, really, it's hard to duplicate that anywhere else. And I saw that like within the Air Force itself, whether it was with other PJs, combat controllers, air crew, support personnel who were, you know, supporting that mission. Or if I was, you know, I, I've had deployments where I work with the Army, work with the Navy, and I actually enjoyed those experiences lots because like you just see what other people do and, and it's very easy to get caught up in like pararescue and CSAR is a thing and you kind of lose sight of the, the bigger picture. So it's just, it's just a piece of people. And then, you know, you brought up, you brought up Roger and I, I would say pararescue is not unique in this regard, but we, we're always like measuring ourselves against other people in our line of work. And it's not that it's competitive, but it's more like you have people like Roger who, you know, you, you look at what he did and what he responded to. And I'm like, I'm being honest. Like, I never had to do anything as intense as he did. Um, and I like to believe that if I was in that situation, I would have responded as admirably as him. But the people that you work with, like they're your colleagues, so you've got to kind of look at them as like, it's just a normal guy. But I would look at someone like Roger and be like, holy shit, man. Like, I, I, I hope that if I was ever in your position, I would respond like you did. So it's this relationship where they're your colleagues, but you can kind of look up to them. And it's because like, I've never been asked to do what Roger has done at that level of 
intensity. But and so I think that's cool because it creates a culture where these are the guys you're working with. You do not want to let them down. And and it's why I like to believe that if I was in that situation, I, I would respond like Roger because these are the guys that you're measuring up to. And so that 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 just being around that caliber of person, you know, whether it's on the, the ground side, the aviation side, that was the that was the best part. That's I mean like there's different degrees of service. And I think sometimes the military tries to like monopolize like say thank you for your service. Like a lot of people are in service oriented jobs. Like people who don't carry guns are also serving their, their country. I think what makes the military and special operations unique is it's yes, like you're serving, but you're also working with a just a very particular kind of, of person and that that like caliber of person. I don't say that like other professions don't have high caliber people, but it's just it's just different and you don't really know until you've experienced it. So, I mean, your job is to save lives. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the deal. Like, what was the most rewarding deployment to where? Or what, what was the most rewarding mission that you got sent on? I mean, what's, what's the story your kids are going to want to know the most? Yeah, you, you know, and a lot of times the missions kind of blend. You don't want to say, like, this was my favorite mission because you're kind of you're making a value judgment on, like, someone's life being, you know, worth more than, than somebody else's. Um, I mean, I would say, like, a mission when I was attached to another service where I got to help a lot of people medically treat them, but it also kind of like tested my capabilities more so than other missions. I would say that was probably the the highlight. Because a lot of missions, you know, I would say are relatively routine. Like you, you train to this high level, like you you know, scuba diving, free fall parachuting, doing all these things. And you've got to train for the worst case scenario, but it's rare that you actually get to execute those skills. So a lot of times in pararescue, it's like, you know, flying in a helicopter, you land right next to the casualty, you pick them up, and granted, like you are doing high-level medical treatment in the helicopter, and that shouldn't be discounted. But it's rare that you get to like utilize more of your capabilities or utilize a lot of your capabilities simultaneously. And you know, you're working with people from different countries, different services. So how how are you how are you tested the the most then? Right? Like I, I completely agree with you, right? I mean, yeah. like you you fight and you you bleed beside your partner forces, and that's yeah. that's like. Yeah, I mean, this guy right here, you know, from, from the mountain yards in Vietnam to, to other partner forces, I mean, they become, oh, Rich, how, how do you feel about that? Basically, when you take it down to it, they're your brothers in arms. Uh, yep. And they're the people that you depend on to live, and they depend on you to live. Yeah. And, and ultimately, for a pararescueman, we both depend on you to keep us alive if something happens. Right. And, and it, it's a, a symbiotic relationship. And that's, that's an important thing that a lot of people don't understand or misunderstand when you talk about working with, with others, with other foreign nationals and, and other foreign forces. Because as Americans, you know, we wear the Hawaiian shirts and the wingtip shoes and, and tell everybody what they do is wrong, what we do is right, so you should listen to us. Although many other cultures in the world do the exact same thing. Uh, but when you boil it down to combat or a combat related or a even a just a, a simple accident that occurs not in combat but in a situation where you're in a a, a region that's denied or, or a region that's hard hardly accessible that's when you're called upon to go in and render assistance and that becomes a very important thing that a lot of people just don't understand that it becomes it becomes a very personal thing and I think that's one of the things that Jason was getting at when he talked about what what are you going to want to tell your kids about what you did? And it doesn't it's not just in the war, Daddy. It's what what have you done with your life 
of which a major portion was the combat rescue role? Yeah, so that, that's, that, that's a great question. And I think, so I think the answer to that is you're, just, you're one of the people that goes. It's kind of like after 9-11, right? I mean, after 9-11, every American was like, wow, like, I wish I could do something about this. Well, there is a way to do something about it. And it's frankly, like at that point, it was join the military. And it's the same thing with, with pararescue. Like, I think, I know it sounds really simple, but if my son asked me, you know, what, what was it like, you think, to define that experience? It would be like, when you get the call to go, like, you, you go. And it sounds like really trivial, but you guys are like, you're going into situations that that's what makes, makes it so unique is that most people don't want to go in those situations. So I think from like a mission standpoint, the, the missions that were the most fulfilling were, were the ones that made you the most nervous, right? Or that, that tested you the most. So not that like people should be doing this to be like personally tested because that's not, that's not why you do it. But like anything else, the, the harder something is to accomplish, the more fulfilled you feel afterwards. If something is given to you, you don't find it that rewarding. So the, the more rewarding missions were the ones where, like, you know, as a, as a PJ, like, instead of treating one patient, you're treating multiple casualties. Instead of just landing, you know, next to the, the site of the injury, you're maybe doing, like, a physically demanding infill on foot to the, to the objective. Or instead of the patient just showing up to you, you have to, like, extricate them from underneath a helicopter, underneath, like, an IED site. So it's when you, when you get to utilize your training, test your capabilities, and then also just there's the individual piece, but then when the team works really well together. So like when you do your part, but when the team works seamlessly, the command and control is tight, the person on the radio is coordinating all the air. And like you, like when you're kind of predicting what everyone else is going to do. So like a lot of times, like when teams work well together, they don't even need to ask like where you're at. They can just look and they can see how you're working and like they know what the next move is. And, and that, that, you know, that comes from training together and putting in, a lot of times. So I would say the most rewarding missions were the ones where you're putting yourself and the team at the most risk because that's what makes answering the call kind of special. If it's like, yeah, you're just doing a, a fob to fob transport, like, yes, that, that job needs to be done. And by fob, I mean, like, you know, secure base to secure base. You're really more of a, just like, um, like a transport platform. It's not like a really, you're not, you're not doing like combat search and rescue. Like you're in a combat zone, but you're not outside of the wire. But, you know, the more, the further forward you are, the more the more risk there is to yourself and the team, and the more your capabilities are tested, that's what makes answering the call something you can feel really good about. So, so much of of saying "send me," right, which is engraved on the big statue at Green Beret graduation. There's an element where you have to overcome fear. You just have to, and and each of us have to kind of make peace with that, and then you've got to do the job, right? And then I'm painting this out as. We have other guys that have that have served in special forces, SEALs, special operations. Take your pick, right? And none of us is superhuman, right? We have all of these emotions, and yet we go anyway. Yeah. And it's kind of breaking that down and saying, "Look, you know, courage isn't not feeling fear; it's saddling up anyway." You know, and and was there some time when you were like, "This could be a, a really bad day," or you know? Like the pucker factor was just enormous. Either what was it or, or how did you deal with that? Because look, I, I, I know your journey because I've also kind of been on it, right? I mean, you go to, yeah. you go to college, you, you, know, you, you take classes, you have a, a path, 9-11 happens, you, you're enlisting in basic training, and then you're getting into just painful smoke sessions to prove that you want to be there. You're getting bonded to a team, but war is, is hanging over you, right? Like you didn't go to Brown to go to war. And, and yet you felt called to do this. And, 
you're right. Exactly. You're exactly right when you say, well, there is a way to actually do something about this. And, and then it was, it was join the military. And there's a million other different ways to serve, but that was the calling of our generation. Yeah. And, and yet there's these, there, there are these moments where it's just, this is really real. And you've got to overcome something. Like what was the, I guess, but it, maybe it's fear, maybe it's something else, but what was the hardest part? Because it, it wasn't the smoke sessions right. for you. It wasn't that. Like what, what was the absolute hardest thing that you had to overcome? You know what's funny is um, you know, the military is really good, I think, at, and we you go back to the basic training. It's like when you, you know, you lose your individuality, you make yourself accountable to a group. A lot of, I think, the things that like people do in the military that might seem almost like reckless, when you have a greater purpose, whether that's the mission itself, your teammates, and frankly, like your teammates is enough. I mean, the pararescue mission, like on a micro level, that's enough where it's like, okay, like if I got to go, I, I, I've got to go. And again, luckily I was not, or luckily or not luckily, you know, it's like I wasn't in a situation like Roger was in where I was like on the hoist cable getting shot at, where like literally like he looked at his jacket and he had a bullet hole there, you know? So and, and if your mission planning is done correctly, you do things to try to mitigate risk, but you can't always mitigate those risks. But I think as far as like channeling fear, the military does some things well in pararescue, obviously. And one of them is like, you're accountable to a greater purpose, whether it's your teammates, mission, country. It might be unique to each person, but you know, when you, when you step outside yourself, it makes it easier to not be as self-conscious and not worry so much about what's going on individually. Right. Like if you're a human being and you're rational, if you're going to have fear and think about yourself, there's ways to make yourself kind of less self-conscious and being part of a group is one way. Everything the military does well is that like the emphasis on procedure, right? So when you go to scuba school and you're they're ripping your regulator out of your mouth, tying it around your tank manifold and flipping you upside down and hitting you, the whole point of that is to teach you, okay, like there's a way out of this. And that way I still remember it to the day. It's like, okay, you get on your knees, you turn your air back on, you trace the regulator. And you go through that checklist of that procedure. And even if now a lot of the soft units have like, um, you know, mental performance coaches and psychologists, and they're, they're teaching things like, you know, rehearsal and stuff like that. But when you go to a brief and you're going over your emergency procedures, that's exactly what you're doing. Like when you're at a parachute brief and it's like, hey, what do you do if you get a, um, you know, a parachute malfunction? Like, and you, you verbalize it and you rehearse it. Like you're, you're, that's exactly what you're doing is you're giving yourself a strategy to cope with a really bad situation. And not every procedure is perfect, but at least when you're under stress, if you have something to do, you're less likely to freeze and get paralyzed by all the chaos around you. And so whether it's in, you know, in medicine and in aviation, jumping, we have procedures for a lot of the bad things that could go wrong. So that was also very helpful because even like, you know, even jumping, right? You're doing these like free fall jumps at night. Maybe you haven't done one in four months. They put equipment on you and you're like, what the hell am I? doing right now and a lot of times like the anticipation is worse than actually doing it because once you get off the ramp you have to to, like okay well now i've got to get my stable position i've got to look at my altimeter when am i going to pull and i'm thinking about you know what if something goes wrong and then you're in kind of just almost robotic procedure like go mode so but you know when you when i did get kind of like okay what am i doing on this ramp here you just think about all right like what am i supposed to do in this jump and go through the steps you're basically mentally rehearsing it so for me, at the time, the one time in my military career when I was like, wow, this is like really bad. I don't know what to do. It was when there wasn't a procedure really to fix it. And it, it's, it's going to sound stupid because I wasn't being shot at. It was in Afghanistan. We were just, there was like a training LZ off base. And we were just doing some like basic stuff, basic patrolling, simulating pickups. 
and we were about, we had done our training, we were about to take off, and we're up the radio, and one of my teammates said, hey, there's unexploded ordnance to like our three o'clock, you know, 10 meters away. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of duds there, but some of the stuff is live too. So I'm thinking, holy shit, like when you're, I'm not flying the helicopter. At that point, there's nothing you can do. I'm like, wow, am I, is this how I'm going to go? Like, just, I didn't know if it was like an IED that somebody had planted. It's like, am I just going to sit here with no control over the situation? And then this bomb goes off and like, that's it. It was like 10 meters away. And that was the worst because I couldn't focus on like, well, my parachute doesn't open. I'm going to do this. I had zero control over the situation. And that's, that was the worst thing. It would, it would kind of be like being a, I've actually been a passenger on a tandem jump because some of my teammates who were tandem qualified, like they had to jump with a passenger to stay current. Like I got more nervous being a passenger than I did jumping myself because I had zero control, zero procedure. Um, and, and so that, that experience of like that unexploded ordinance, obviously, it ended up not exploding because I'm here talking to you. But even when we were flying away and we're just off the ground and hovering, shit, like, am I, is this how it's going to end? And that was, it's not like a glorious combat story, but that was when I was the most, probably like emotionally stressed because there was, there was zero I could do about it. <laughs> Control. Control's a thing, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many, I mean, how much training, how many people did you ultimately work on throughout your, your career? And like, how did that kind of, tra- you know, ish ballpark? And like, how did that kind of bigger question is, how did that prepare you as you, as you wanted to become a doctor of physical therapy? I mean, probably over the course of my career, a couple of dozen patients. I mean, there were some, you know, like in Afghanistan, where it's more like a traditional, like Kazavak type mission. The, the, the pickups were a lot more frequent in other theaters where like maybe, you know, I was attached to another service and, you know, it's more of a ground asset. Then it might have, it might have been only a handful. I've had deployments where like all I did was I just picked up aircraft that had crashed, unmanned aircraft and tried to recover the sensitive equipment. But I would say like a couple of dozen, you know, like patient contacts on deployment. It's not including like the training you do at home where you do ambulance ride-alongs and work in emergency rooms. But as far as how that prepared me for what I do now, I mean, I think just having the the experience of knowing what, not that like in my job, I'm doing outpatient sports physical therapy. So I'm not working with sick people. But when you do work with people that are like actually sick and in trouble, it just makes everything else so much easier. And, you know, like having a, a big picture on like, okay, even though my job is to make someone, you know, knee feel better, like having a better understanding of like just their, their systems and their physiology. And maybe like say it's an older person is on certain medication and has comorbidities, like having, you know, been responsible for working with those populations as a pararescue man and then having a paramedic credential in the Air Force, you're just much more comfortable with that stuff because you just need, no matter how much you stimulate treating patients, you need rest with real people to really feel comfortable. It's like no matter, I'm sure when you go to the, the Q course and go through like your, you know, your SF training, yeah, like you get great training, but that first mission is still nerve wracking because it's real. Um, and, you know, working on a, a live person versus like a simulated casualty, it's just, it's much different. And then I think having an understanding of what it means to really be prepared. I mean, the great thing about the military and special operations is that there's really not a lot of room for false confidence. And, you know, in pararescue, like you could be in a situation where you're responsible for treating multiple casualties that are, you know, have significant injuries. And so there's a certain kind of training that it takes to prepare for that. And I think that it's less academic in a lot of ways and less theoretical than maybe what I encountered in my physical therapy education. So kind of knowing, okay, like there's things that were good about my civilian education that the military could probably learn from, but 
it works the other way around too. And I think just knowing what it means to really be prepared, like what constitutes good training and not just checking a box off and like learning about, you know, how, how a condition should manifest in theory versus like, okay, you know, even, even when it comes to like, you know, drugs, right? Like when you see what someone actually looks like when they've taken ketamine and the changes that occur that are normal, that are normal side effects of the drug. What's ketamine? It's, it's a drug that like you would give in, in combat for pain and sedation. Okay. But like in a civilian medical environment, until you've like actually gone to like a residency or fellowship, you, you learn on a slide like, okay, well, here's what ketamine does. Here are the side effects. And it's like, oh, side effects, like mental confusion, all these things. And it's like, but again, it's abstract. When you've seen someone, a normal person, you give them ketamine. In one minute, they were like very, very lucid. And the next minute, they're in la-la land. You'll never forget that. It has, it has a very, there's a, an emotional component to learning. And the military puts you in uncomfortable, stressful situations. And the idea, the goal, right, is like to stress you enough where like you're uncomfortable and you learn, but not so much that you shut down. And I think that like having that background and, you know, what really, what does good training look like? What does it mean to be uncomfortable, but not so uncomfortable that you freeze? And then taking that into what I do now. And so um, a lot of my education even now has been like kind of self-guided because yes, like you need a formal education, but I think having that background in pararescue and special operations kind of taught me almost like how to learn and where to seek out information that's going to make me more competent as a professional. All right. Now, now let's, let's kind of transition, just get your philosophy on things a, a little bit. Cause what, what I hear is PJs are, are ultimately really tested, right? Physically. I mean, you, the, the mental side you, you gain, you gain a lot as well, but if you can't cut it, you learn what it's like to perform at the, at the tip of the spear, right? And, and so you have that, you've gone through that. And, and then you go through and you get a lot of hands-on trauma, et cetera, style medicine as well. And you get the mindset that comes from the military. And so now you, you've become, like to me, a really significant thought leader on what human performance with some common sense mixed in, because it's not just purely academic. And it's not purely just like, you know, I, I, I'm not a doctor of physical therapy. I, I, I didn't, like, human performance is something that I had to learn, but I, I take cues from experts like you and Dr. McGill and Kelly Starrett and, and people like that. And so I, I've really come to appreciate and respect your, your opinion, your philosophy, because there's, you're, you're a straight shooter in, in my book. So um, just kind of want to get like, what should people do, right? to be healthy, push the envelope, challenge themselves in your world? What, what, what's the world need more of? Yeah, I mean, philosophically, human performance is the same as what I did in pararescue. So you have a mission or your goal. First of all, what's your, what's your objective? So in the context of the military, when it comes to human performance, like you need to be physically prepared for your job so that the, the job is hard enough. There's so many variables that you can't control from like a, a, a tactical standpoint that you shouldn't have to worry about, right? Like you're in Afghanistan, well, can I do this 10 mile infill through hilly terrain? And not only be able to complete it, but can you complete that infill? And like now your job actually starts. So are you fit enough and prepared enough where like now when you get to your objective, you're not so fatigued that like your skill deteriorates? The idea of the physical preparation in any job, whether it's the military, law enforcement, fire, or even like professional sports is to basically give yourself enough sort of physiological currency so that Skill is the limiting performance in your endeavor, not the physical ability. Now, there's certain sports, right, where like some people are just so physically gifted, no matter how much you prepared, quote unquote, like I could do the, be on the best 
program in the world, never got a 40 inch vertical leap, right? So there's like a genetic component to it as well. But fortunately in the military, like you don't need to be a super freak genetically to be able to be physically competent. But so it's also risk, risk mitigation, right? In order to prepare for a pararescue mission, special forces mission that you did, you need to do risky things in training. Like you can't, you can't notionalize and talk through a halo jump and then expect to be able to do it. But at the same time, like we have training restrictions, like we don't jump, do a training jump when the winds are 50 miles an hour because it's just from a risk reward standpoint, it's like we're not going to like kill people in training to prepare for something. We want to, like the training has to be risky, but not so risky that like you're compromising the, the team because if it's too risky, then you don't get to do a mission. You're not available. So you've got to be available for your job. So how, how do we translate this to, to basically everyone, right? People that want to push themselves, challenge themselves, you know, become a little bit better, right? I mean, you know, halo jumps, cool, like face, face your fears yeah. down, right? But I mean, it's kind of, so you're training for something, your goal is I want to be stronger, healthier. I sit too much. I have, I have a phone like everybody does. Right. Like yeah. the, the 90%, I mean, the American way of life is, I mean, you think what people in our, our country have sacrificed yeah. that they sacrificed first and foremost through, through human performance. Right. I mean, storming the beaches of Normandy, et cetera, right. The wars that people have fought, like that's in our genetics. It's in our DNA. There's a lot of type A people is what I'm getting at. And, and they, they just want more out of life. That, those are the people listening to this. Yeah. And so what does that look like? whether it's lifting weights or running or rucking or doing CrossFit or all together mobility, stretching. I mean, you, you, yeah. one quote that you read, which is great or said before is like, we've made lifting weights way too difficult. It's not calculus, you know? And, and yet, how do we push ourselves best? Yeah. So think of like training physical preparation as a menu with different courses. So obviously you can have a different model, but kind of my model is you have to have number one, variability. So variability is like, can your body get into certain positions? You can think of it more as like kind of mo mobility because if, for example, like you want to be able to do squats in the gym, well, if your hip doesn't flex or rotate, like you're not going to squat very well. So you're not going to be able to do the whole movement well if you don't have the individual pieces, components in your joints to be able to achieve that movement. You need to have this, this variability, but you've got to also have a way to, to kind of structure that variability. So think of it Think of your variability as like your alphabet. We can have an alphabet. If we don't have grammar, we don't have a way to organize that alphabet, then we're not going to be able to communicate and make sense out of all of those options. If you want to have options, variability, you need to have a way to organize those options. So that's kind of where like the skill component of a movement comes in. You can have all the like range of motion in your joints in the world, but it doesn't mean you're going to squat well or do whatever you want to like even run well if you sequence those joints appropriately and have some kind of like a some technical standards. That's like more like your your grammar. And then you need, to, you need to have power, which is kind of your ability to display a very high output. That's kind of like doing something like, say, like a 1RM, um, you know, deadlift or squat, or like being able to just sprint as fast as you can, achieve like a maximal velocity or jump as high as you can. That's, think of that as power. It's more just like, it's intensity. And by intensity, I mean, not like how you how hard you perceive something to be, but your your output relative to what you're capable of. So benching 95 pounds one time is more intense than benching, you know, 40 pounds 50 times, even though the latter feels subjectively harder. So intensity again is like your output relative to your capability. And the last component would be 
capacity. So capacity is your ability to kind of endure fatigue, your ability to kind of prolong things. Now, depending on what your goal is, you're going to gravitate towards different relative proportions of all those things. So a ballet dancer, circus ballet performer, needs a lot more variability, options, mobility than a power lifter. A power lifter needs a lot more power than capacity. An ultra marathoner needs a lot more capacity than a power lifter or a sprinter. For the average person that just the, the whole like, I just want to be healthy and like kind of be prepared for anything scenario, it's a little bit problematic because if you're prepared for everything, you're not really preparing. You have to have some kind of a goal, right? But if it's like, I want to be healthy, I want to be able to like run away from somebody if they're chasing me, pick up my kids, but also go for go for a rock or a hike with my family. You know, I want to be like decently strong. I would say for like the average person, you should be doing some kind of mobility work every day that addresses your limitations or if you don't have limitations, that maintains key and range of emotions that you'll lose if you don't access them through dedicated mobility work. And that's something that Kelly Surrett has spoken about, you know, better than I ever will. And he's got a ton of great information on that. So some kind of mobility work daily. I would do some kind of, you know, strength work probably like twice a week. And by strength work, and this is where like the calculus quote comes in, like a lot of times people get emotionally attached to exercises. Like for example, ex- any exercise is a means to an end. Unless you're like a competitive Olympic lifter or gymnast, like you don't need to do any particular exercise. You're doing an exercise as a means to an end, as a means to just strengthening certain muscle groups for a job or a sporting endeavor, or just to be generally healthier and more robust. So like you don't need to Olympic lift do muscle ups or even do squats or deadlifts like to get stronger to be healthy and and for a lot of people i think there's like lower cost ways of just being healthy and strong i'm not saying people shouldn't do olympic lifts but i'm saying like does the average 50 year old like need to olympic lift absolutely not if they like to i'm an exercise libertarian if you want to do it then do it be prepared for it but you don't you don't need to do it you're not missing out if you're not doing muscle ups or olympic lifts so again, kind of avoid those emotional attachments to exercise and figure out like, what's the big picture? Like, why are you doing this movement in the first place? You can keep it like really simple and really basic if you have that philosophy, but I would do some kind of strength training twice a week. And then, um, you know, probably like one ish day a week, I would do some kind of like really high output, like whether it's, you know, short duration, quick burst, whether it's like sprints outside running, sprints up a hill or Sprints on a bike. It doesn't matter like what your medium is, but where you're just like you're getting your body in, or you know plyometric jumps. You're getting to bot your body to move fast, move with some elasticity because those are qualities that, especially as you age, you're you're going to lose them if you don't try to maintain them. And then probably like you know two or three days a week, I would do some kind of just aerobic, low intensity type work. And that's where you know you guys have been very like great advocates for even just like even going outside for a walk like. If people just strength train twice a week, even if it was like body weight movement, did some kind of mobility work, and then just like just went for a long walk three days a week, you would cover your bases. Maybe with some awesome weight on their back. Yeah. Call it rucking. Exactly. Not to be like a specialized athlete. Like you're not going to make it to the Olympics for hockey by doing that, but like you just want to be healthy and be able to meet a variety of demands in your life. Strength train twice a week, mobility work every day, and then like go for long walks and maybe one day do something fast even if it's on a bike or a controlled environment like a, a versa climber or whatever like I, I think that like if you can do it you have the, the requisite skills and mobility and foundational elements like sprinting is a great activity i think it's kind of like a fountain of youth 
So not everybody should be sprinting unless they can achieve certain benchmarks, but there's ways to move fast without sprinting and risking pulling a hamstring. So walking, I think, is a very underutilized means of exercise. And, you know, everything now is about like instant gratification. How can I hack my workout? How can I get, you know, same benefit of two hours and five minutes? But there's, there's something fundamentally human about like walking for a very long time and doing a four minute Tabata interval protocol. Now that that's bad, like it serves a purpose for certain things, but it's not a replacement for going out and having this really like prolonged, low intensity locomotive type effort because there's something I think really unique about, about walking and people, people need to do more of it. You don't get that if your goals, like I want to do this interval protocol and have it be done in 10 minutes. Like there's something very unique from an adaptation standpoint about doing something at a low intensity for a very long time. And walking is one way to do that. Okay. So as you piece all this together and you say mobility and power and speed and, you know, strength training and, and, you know, some, some lower intensity, like move more, right? I mean, you know, 10,000 steps get some, some press. I mean, you're not really going to hurt yourself if you get 10,000 steps a day, right? Um, so transitioning to kind of your, your day job, a big part of it, you're, you're rehabbing people, you're helping people rehab. Like, Hey, I got this, this ailment. I got this, this thing, right? Like, how do we avoid injury? How, how do we learn to listen to ourselves better, right? And then, you know, how do we kind of get back in the fight? Like, wh- wh- what does that look like? Because I'm no stranger to, to injuries. This guy's no stranger to injuries. And I know for damn sure you're no stranger to injuries either, right? So w- what is that? How do we do that? Yeah, I mean, as far as like kind of reducing the potential for injury, that's just smart training, right? And smart is a very big term and it's, somewhat subjective and it's relative to like what you're trying to do but with anything it's kind of like the, the idea in the military like you know no plan survives first contact with the enemy like that's true but it doesn't mean that you don't have a plan so even when you're rehabbing somebody like you have to have a template off which to work so an example would be this like i'm working with a printer that has like a hamstring injury like before that printer ever met me and got injured they have some kind of a template to how they train to develop their speed and it might be like doing you know acceleration work one day a week, max velocity work one day a week, some more speed endurance work one day a week, and then lifting two or three days a week. So they have they have a template. And if that if that template is managed responsibly in terms of dosage and intensities and stuff like that and ground contact, also addressing things in your program that aren't sprint specific because specialization is the enemy of health. Like the more specialized you are to do one thing well, the more you probably put your health at risk because the body needs some kind of variety for, for health so you're not getting like really really typecasted so even a, even a high level like athlete needs some kind of general work just to maintain health now that, that would include things that look nothing like their school but it's a balance you got to figure out like what how much of each of those components do you actually need to perform at a high level because if all you do is general work for health but you don't do any specific performance oriented work to specialize in your skill then you're never going to be that good at what you want to do so Again, it's a balance, but having the right template kind of mission plan in place is the first thing. And then if you get hurt, right, like you have to, sometimes you've got to audit your process, but sometimes just getting hurt is the cost of doing business. Just like it's the cost of doing business on a military mission. Like you can do everything right from a training and a planning standpoint. People can still get killed because it's just a dangerous, it's a dangerous game. And that's kind of where like the whole, from an injury standpoint, like it's risk management kind of weighing cost benefits. So, the key with rehab is to be as aggressive as possible without exacerbating pain. 
or exacerbating symptoms. So with that hamstring injury in a sprinter, right? Like even if they're quote unquote injured, if you can help it, you don't want to do just very low level things that look physical therapy-ish. And it kind of my sometimes like issue with physical therapy is that it can be, it can underload, it tends to underload as a profession. And if you're underloading, that's the equivalent of just doing a PowerPoint presentation on halo jumps instead of halo jumping. Just because you can't do a halo jump for whatever reason, maybe the winds are too high, doesn't mean that your only alternative is to watch a PowerPoint on jumping. It could be going into a wind tunnel. It could be doing, you know, now they have like simulators that simulate being under canopy. It could be any of those things, but there's, there's ways to train for the risky activity without doing it the riskiest way. So if your hamstring is injured, should you go out and sprint as fast as you can? No. That doesn't mean that all you need to do is, is glute bridges and, and, you know, different kinds of stretches. You can do drills that most sprinters do in their warm-ups or in their program that mimic sprinting that, that don't exacerbate symptoms. And so because they have a template in place, maybe that injured sprinter, the first week they're injured, instead of doing, you know, max velocity work on the track where they're running, maybe they can ride a bike and they can do, you know, for five to eight seconds, they can pedal that bike as fast as they can. It's not the same stimulus and adaptation as running, but it's better than doing nothing fast. So basically, you can work off the template that you would already use. If you have, you know, your acceleration template, you can do different things that look like the body would look in an acceleration pattern, but they don't exacerbate symptoms. So maybe instead of like, you know, sprinting out of the blocks for 10 meters, maybe you're pushing a heavy sled. And sometimes that might not set off your hamstrings, but you're working on the same body angles, same body positions, working some of the same muscles. So the idea is trying to mimic when you're injured what you would normally do without making yourself worse. And then also try to get at the root cause of the injury. Maybe there is no root cause, but if there is, maybe you had a muscle that was underdeveloped. Maybe you had a mobility limitation. So address those weaknesses while also trying to keep building your strength. Is that, is that kind of answer it? Yeah. So, okay. So we got into kind of a, a fun conversation last time we chatted about like the, the role of fitness as it meets modern day and social media. And there's all kinds of pitfalls out there, right? Attention seeking and a, a lot of extreme positions out there on fitness kind of all over the place. And like, what, what's your stance on the, the state of the world fitness, you know, from just the way that social media is, I mean, we're seeing this huge explosion of everyone's a trainer now and everyone's going to do virtual classes. And it's just, you know, there's so many businesses being built around this. Now, where's the world that you see it? How, how's it going to go? What are the problems? And if, if you want to be smarter about this, how do you kind of mitigate the, the bad stuff out there? Yeah, it's tough. And I think that what you're speaking to, like in the fitness and exercise world, is just a microcosm for everything that social media does. I mean, social media tends to perpetuate some extremism, whether it's politically and, and exercise. That's kind of the nature of those platforms. That's what attention drives engagement. And these platforms are about engagement. So, you know, fitness, the more outrageous something looks, the more, you know, likes and clicks and that, that kind of thing it can generate. So we live in a world now where there's so much information and that's seen as a good thing. And access to information certainly is a good thing, but the problem with more information is now how do you filter signal from noise, right? Like how do you know what's actually good information? I will say with fitness versus politics, like for the most part, something that looks quote unquote extreme from a fitness standpoint is not hurting somebody and it gets somebody who otherwise wouldn't exercise to exercise. I think that's like generally a good thing. 
But as an individual, you have to have some kind of like a BS filter for any kind of information you're receiving. Like what kind of makes sense? You know, what's going to pass a sanity check? I think that, you know, right now, like you said, everyone is a trainer. Everyone's an influencer. I think like just broad strokes, like I would tell anybody that there's no, if anybody tells you like they have the secret so that what they're doing is new, like no one's doing anything new and there's no secrets and there's no like one thing that's the key to your fitness, to your health. Like if someone says like, look, if all, all you have to do is like do this one workout or ride, ride this contraption and like that's all you need. Like again, from a health standpoint, you need balance. Now, if you're the kind of person where like you're either going to do nothing or you're going to do like just that one thing four days a week that's not hurting you then like that's better than the alternative of nothing but there needs to be some kind of variety some kind of balance and some kind of i would say nuance but nuance doesn't generally generate attention on social media but ultimately with fitness having people should find what they like right like if you don't like doing if you don't like it you're not going to do it and that can be the pull of some of these things that look extreme is that they get people to enjoy things I think what you guys do a great job of is community, getting people to do things in groups, because things you do in a community are more likely to develop long-term habits. I personally enjoy exercise with my alone time. I don't actually want community when I do it, but if you need community to get yourself to change your behavior and, and develop lasting behavioral change, then do it. Like know, know what kind of person you are and what is going to help you develop habits. And whatever those habits are need to be incorporated into your exercise routine. Otherwise, you're not going to, to stick to it. So what do you see in terms of, you know, people working out in garages and at home? I mean, we're in the middle of a huge shift now, right? I mean, from you can get medical advice over your phone. You can get programming over your phone. You can work out at home. A lot of it's isolating, which I have some problems with. Like we're big on communities and tribes and, and all of that kind of stuff, right? Because there's a social element that we share a past of, if you do hard things together, then that's a really rewarding experience. And you want to go back. It doesn't matter that it was hard. It matters who you did it with. Right. And like, that's an, the ultimate accountability. It's what you talked about in terms of the, the communities that you worked with is you look around to your left and your right, and you don't want to let anybody down. And, and that's the ultimate accountability. Where do you see it going in terms of how people are, are working out and how we treat, how we treat ourselves, you know, from, what you're what you're doing now? How's that? How's that going to evolve? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I think the best thing is people have choices, right? So right now, the the pandemic, the garage gym phenomenon, largely dictated by the fact that people just can't go to gyms. When this is over, personally, I love the idea of having a garage gym. I'm actually moving out of New York City. Like I'm literally moving tomorrow, so I'll be in my new place while I'm on the stairs, and like being able to have a, a gym in my garage where now like getting to the place to exercise is not an obstacle to me doing it, I think is like fantastic. But I think that when this pandemic is over, there's going to be a lot of people who are just craving social interaction or like, I, see, I don't, I don't work from home all day. So like for me, being, working out in my garage is great because I'm like, I'm never home anyway. And I'm like, now I've got, I don't have to leave home to do something I enjoy. But if I was on like Zoom nine hours a day, I might be like, man, like I don't want to go in my garage because it's just, I've been stuck here all day. I want to like get in my car and go somewhere, maybe the gym. So I think that when this is over, there's going to be a lot of people who, even if it's not like a group class where you have like a community and a tribe, they might want to go to a gym just to get out of their house. Um, but I think that when this is over, the ideal is to have, like it's a free market, right? Like have options. Like there should be garage gym options and there should be 
very, you know, different types of platforms, a lot of people to train at home, but people should also have the option to go to a gym, do things in a group. I think ultimately we're going to see that both things are being utilized, but I think that when the dust clears and when people do have the option to like return to gyms and group workouts, I think we're going to see a lot more of the garage gym phenomenon because people have been validated and people realize like, oh, like I actually can do this at home and you don't need a ton of equipment to get a good workout, which I think was a lot of people's bias. Like, well, I I won't have the equipment to do it. You don't need much, actually, you know, especially if your goal is just general health, general fitness. It, it's not calculus, right? Yeah. And just like we're seeing with, with work, right? Like, I think that there's, this is proof of concept. Like, people can work from home and don't need to be micromanaged all day to get work done. But I think that even when this is over, I think some people will still want to go back to work because even if it's once or twice a week, because they won't want to be at home all day and all night. So I think that we're going to see a hybrid when this is all over, but we're also going to see a lot more like decentralization, a lot more autonomy, working from home, working out from home, just because like now the experiment's been done and it's been validated and it seems to be working pretty well. And, and how do you think, you know, the whole sort of teledoc or, you know, individualized, personalized treatment, I mean, there's a lot of gaps in this. And I'm just wondering if, yeah. if you see how that can, like, what's that going to go, whether it's injury or, or physical therapy or, you know, specialized, individualized, anything in, in your field or, or where that might go? Yeah. Well, I think when it, so when it comes to like precision or individualized medicine, I think that's like a very popular, you know, buzzword, catchphrase. But I still think that when it comes to a lot of what I do and a lot of what needs to happen, like when it comes to general health, isn't precision medicine. It's just getting people to do basic things well. When, if it's health, just like lifestyle stuff. If it's what I do, it's just getting people to like, achieve just what Kelly would talk about, just basic, normal human being ranges of motion, which a lot of people don't have. So most people I work with, if they have knee pain, like 90% of them are going to get the same stuff because they can't do the basics. Kind of like, you know, before you join the, the military, like if you can't shoot on iron sights and you don't know how to like draw your pistol from the holster properly and have a poor stance and poor presentation, like it doesn't matter how much somebody individualizes the weapon to you. You don't even know how to, how to hold it. So when it comes to what I do in physical therapy, like I think outside of like very high level athletes in specialized situations, I think individualization is highly overrated. I think it's more of a marketing term than like a real thing. And so when it comes to like, and this is my opinion, and if you ask the question, I'm going to give you my opinion. When it comes to like telemedicine, at least in physical therapy, I, I'll be completely honest. Like there's some things that are conducive to like virtual physical therapy and some things that aren't. And a lot, a lot of times like, I can't really tell what's going on unless I put my hands on somebody. So I'll tell people like, look, like, yeah, I, if they ask, I can do this remotely, but I don't think it's as good as the real thing. And, you know, granted, it's more scalable in a lot of cases, but I personally, I don't like middle of the road type solutions. I like doing one, you know, something really well. And, you know, like, so for, for example, instead of seeing somebody virtually for like their knee pain, I would much rather have like a generic virtual physical therapy platform that's not meant to be individualized. I'm not claiming this is the perfect thing for you, but it's like, hey, you do these basic like knee exercises. I think for 80% of the people, they're going to work. If it doesn't work for you, now I'll see you in person because now I know that like you did the basics and that didn't work. And now you might require a more hands-on thorough evaluation. But when I do virtual consults with people, a lot of times, because I can't touch them, I put my hands on them. I just give them what I would have given the generic knee template anyway. When it comes to like movement, 
and somebody has joint pain, if you can't feel a joint, you know, that's, that's hard to do really well virtually. But I think that like there can be a, a generic virtual platform that's not individualized, that, that isn't someone's not being evaluated by another human where like you try it, assuming that you don't, you know, have certain thresholds or red flags, you try it. And then if it works, awesome. Now you save the healthcare system a bunch of money and a bunch of time for yourself. If it doesn't work, now you've kind of been triaged and now you know, okay, like I'll benefit from seeing somebody in person. Because I think that like, and that's, that's a lot of what Kelly does with like his, his platform, the Ready State. A lot of people like enter the medical system and they don't need actual medical attention. They just need to do these basic movement things well. But once somebody enters the medical system, the, the medical system incentivizes overspending. Like if you have knee pain and you go see a general practitioner or like an orthopedic surgeon, you're probably going to get an x-ray that you may or may not need. That's a couple hundred bucks of somebody's money. You're going to get, you know, pay for that, that consult. Then you're going to get a physical therapy. You're going to pay for a separate physical therapy evaluation. You're going to get a bunch of, you're going to be told to get a physical therapy three days a week because the insurance company reimburses three days a week for four weeks. And they have no incentive to discharge you before that. So once you're in the system, it's going to cost for a very, for a benign thing, probably a minimum of like $2,000. Uh, again, we don't see the cost because it's supposedly free, but it's not free. Like you're getting less money from your employer or the government's spending money or paying more taxes. Someone is paying for it. So I think that there's like, there is a way to use technology to help triage some of these, these problems and then to reserve in-person care for when it's really needed. What, you know, a lot of times, like for you see somebody, a physician, you get the main evaluation, then they ask you to show up for a follow-up and the follow-up is two minutes and they don't touch you. That can be done virtually. It's a waste of time to be showing up for that, you know, in person. So there's things that, that can be done virtually well, but there's also times when you're sacrificing things. Physical therapy, I think, is kind of unique because, in my opinion, it's still a largely hands-on profession, and there's certain things that require, you know, a hands-on assessment. But that isn't to say that some things can't be done remotely. But I don't. A lot of times, people people are advertising individual programs when they're really just doing something generic. So instead of like charging more for an individualized precision program, just make it cheap and generic and then have them pay for individualized care when it's really needed. And I think that's better done in person, at least in physical therapy. All right. I'll let Rich ask this sort of final question or whatever he's got. I, it might have something to do with the fact that he fell in a tiger pit several decades ago, right? And his knee's been all jacked up ever since. He's, he's fought through it. I don't know. I, 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 I uh, surprised him with this that, uh, that lead in. But any, anyway, Rich, what do, you, what do you got for Dr. K? Hey, it's just fine. I want to take it back to one other thing. And that is starting with your military training all the way through. One thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the thing that makes military people so good it's because you are pressed over and over again to a higher level is learning self-discipline. That's self-discipline to yourself, self-discipline around the mission, self-discipline when you talked about standing on the tailgate at 25,000 feet. That's self-discipline to force yourself to push down the butterflies in your stomach and think about the things that you have to go through in sequence as you conduct a jump. And that's a form of self-discipline. And it all began way back in basic training, just like Jason talked about when it was like, gee, drill sergeant, I don't understand why you're doing this. Well, there was a yeah. purpose to it. 
It was a teardown of you as an individual. It was to build you up into the group, but it was also to teach you self-discipline. And we all learn that. When I hear you talk about the things that people should be doing today to be healthier, to be well, uh, along with the, the physical therapy or physical exercise, uh, it's important, I think, to me, nutrition goes right along with that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people tend to forget the nutrition part because they still suck down Coca-Colas and they, and they eat all the, the wonderful Whataburgers and the French fries. And then they go out and do some exercise and expect they're going to be just fine. Well, there's a, there's a combination that goes with that. But it all goes back to self-discipline and understanding yourself as an individual and then using the people around you that are experts to get smarter about how you're doing things. And the idea that, that you get off your ass and you get out and you start doing things for you to make you healthier. I continue to do that, or at least I hope I do to a certain degree. And my knee's just fine. Thank you very much. You know, I've been, I've been pressing Rich and he, <laughs> he did happen to, you know, how come you didn't show up at PT this morning? Was it your knee, Rich? No, that was that. That was the 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 cold that I'm getting over right now. When you when you said the uh, the tiger pit, it reminded me. I don't know if you guys have watched the show Cobra Kai. I'm like the the guys like fighting in Vietnam. Like I think mean, like you know like, like a, basically like fighting on this log in Vietnam. And if you lost the fight, you fell into a pit full of cobras. You know, so he said tiger pit. I'm like, is that what we're talking about here? Like the Cobra Kai like POW uh, initiation. <laughs> no, I, I was on Okinawa and the Marines had dug a hole with the logs in the bottom. And I, I don't know if there was a snake in there or not, but had about an 80 pound rucksack and fell off and fell into the logs and then pulled pulled a, a bunch of my leg stuff loose. But uh, it, it all came back together and it all worked just fine. He hates talking about this stuff, but I'm like, damn it, Rich, like we got mountains to climb. We got cities to visit for, you know, decades to go, like go get a new knee or do something, man. Like you gotta, you gotta stay in the fight. Right. So Anyway, I, I just figured I'd drop that just in case it comes up later. But uh, thanks a million for your time. Tell us how we can we can find you. Yeah, um, website is resilientperformance.com. That's a good way to engage. And then for social media, we have Instagram, and that Instagram handle is resilientppt. So resilient uh, performance physical therapy, resilient PPT. And then my personal Twitter is uh, greenfeetpt. Yeah, any of those platforms, um, happy to engage. Awesome. We'll, we'll link them all out. And you also have your own podcasts and stuff. Yeah. People should listen more. A lot of brilliance in the basics, my friend. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, there you go. Outro's begun. <laughs> he has some great insights. Uh, he has a terrific background. He's, he's a very accomplished young man. And he's not that young. But to me, he's young. Uh, but he, but he had some great insights for people every day and some great insights into the special operations community. You don't hear a lot of doctors talk the way that he talks, right? I, I've chatted with him several times, so a lot, of, a lot of it blends together. But in essence, if you're going through rehab, you shouldn't do nothing because you can't do this, right? Exactly. The, the idea of you're pushing a sled if you want to stay better at strong at sprinting if your hamstrings torn like you, you you have to you have to ease yourself into it you can't do a halo jump by watching a, a powerpoint a powerpoint there's, there's ways to adapt and still yeah. do it and you know i there's just a common way to approach things that special operations guys have that you know there's not a, there's not any bullshit in what he's saying no right? 
Oh. He takes it down to the, the, the kernel of knowledge that you have to have, and that's kernel with a K, not a C. And then he just, he fills it out. And you can tell he's a very educated young man, but he, he talks in such a way that anyone can understand him in, in a way that's purposeful and gets right to the mission. And that's what soft guys do. I will, I will guarantee that the military was good for him like that because you get, I mean, Brown's an Ivy league school, right? It's, it's the most liberal Ivy, Ivy league school that there is. Yeah. I've dealt with some Brown graduates before when, when I was in education. Yeah. I, I got it. Yeah. Probably not like him. Not like him at all. You know, and, and the, the, very smart people, very sharp people, but not to the, to the level that he is in that he can take what he's learned in his medical arena and his physical therapy arena and expound on it in such a way that people can understand him. It's, it's a really hard thing. And, you know, I struggled, I, we, we talked about this briefly, but it was this, you, you start over intellectual, over intellectualizing everything because you've read a book, right? And that doesn't draw the same connections. And if you're in the people business and if you're a doctor, you're in the people business, Yep. learning how to communicate with others. And it goes back to, look, this isn't, you know, an, an advertisement for joining the military. This is an advertisement, or this is very much a, a call to service. And there's all sorts of different ways to do ways that. Ways to serve, yes. The, the military is a really good one, though, when, you know, you just don't have true intellectuals being driven towards the military like they used to be. True. Right? And, and I, I think that's a shame because you need ambassadors like Doug out there that can, can build these bridges. And so, you know, if, if you're out there and wondering what else you can do with your life or how do I do something special? I mean, your twenties is a great time after you get out of school, your, your first job to get out there and, and do something like what, what Doug did, you know, everyone's got to choose their own path in their own way, but you, you'll learn a lot of perspective and, and you certainly learn how to deal with people. I mean, if you're in the Peace Corps and you're out in the middle of nowhere learning, yeah. You know, sometimes in a foreign language, sometimes, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways to do it. And I'm going off on a, on a tangent, but it's a consistent theme that we talk about. But, but you also, regardless of where you are, whether it's the military or, or some other form of service, when you get into a service mindset, it builds self-discipline and self-confidence and in a way that nothing else can do. And I think that's very important. Yeah. We'll see how we get uh, Doug back on the show. I just, I've started sending him, hey, I got a question here. I got a question there. I told him about how I fasted to kind of decrease my inflammation in my elbows. He sent me some other exercises to to sort of do on on that regard. And this is exactly what Michael Easter oh, Lord, from Men's Health. Oh, Lord, he'll probably send me some stuff for my knee. We are. We're going to do that, <laughs> right? We're going to talk about Rich's knee from the tiger pit, right? And, oh, it'd uh, be great to have him back again because I think we just kind of scratched the surface with him on this. Yeah. You know, we've done this a, a couple of times where we get someone on and I think that it is important for people to get to know someone, meaning how did they grow up and, and stuff like that and why they chose to serve or what, what helped them find their path. It's just, this isn't really the, the three hour, four hour, five hour podcast format. So the next time it would be, Hey, let's talk something a little bit more direct. You know? Exactly. And, and that's, yes. that stuff really interests me. I know it interests you yeah. and, you know, we hope it interests you guys out there and 
Hope that you've enjoyed listening today to, to Dr. K. Till the next time.